Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people who are currently working in schools, and we talk about life in their current country and dive into some specific topics. The podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People always ask what Chromebooks we recommend and what Windows laptops we recommend, and after trying literally all of them, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more info and try out some devices, please just go to gg.gg forward slash Acer Education. That's gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get right back to you. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Apps Events. We're a Google partner. We work all around the world. We've just got one piece of new information right now. This is in, in January 2021. We're a G Suite Enterprise for Education partner. That's Giuseppe. This is a bunch of premium tools available to people using Google at their schools. We can help you get set up with a free one-month trial. So please check out the link in the show notes, and we'll do that right away. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. It's John Micton. Co-host Dan is still in Austria, enjoying the Alps with his family, and will be here next week for our next week podcast. Anyway, I'm very excited to have two guests who actually currently are in Florida, Kelly and Sean, and they have quite a popular podcast, which they're going to talk about, and they also are really transforming the way we look at teaching children uh, coding. And it's all focused on uh, Python. So really have the luxury and privilege of having them both with us. And we're going to kind of unpack this question. Why are we teaching coding? And what are some approaches and dispositions and some of the challenges and opportunities they've discovered in their own professional uh, context and also with all the work they do through their podcast. So over to you both. I'll let you kind of introduce yourselves. Tell us a bit about your podcast. And then we'll go into the question. So Kelly and Sean, such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. I know it's a little earlier than in Luxembourg where it's three o'clock, but you're both smiling, which is a good sign. Yes, we, we wake up early. At least I do. I wake up early all the time. Thanks for having us, John. Um, it's such a pleasure to, to be on your podcast. Sean and I have been um, working really hard on our podcast for the past three years, three and a half. Years. Yeah, we're about two and a half, I think. Yeah, we're getting yeah. close to three. <laughs> um, so um, I'm Kelly Schuster-Paredes. I'm a teacher that codes, and I've been coding in Python for, I'm going on my fourth year teaching it. So never, it's kind of like those things, those, that game that you play, never have I ever, <laughs> never have I ever coded in Python until three years ago. So now I code in it and I teach it. Fantastic. And my name's Sean Tiber. I am the coder that teaches. So I've also been learning Python and, and using Python about the same amount of time that uh, Kelly has. But the difference is that I come from a really long background of technology work. I went to university for com you know, not computer science, but information systems, a very closely related field. So I've been coding for the better, you know, the majority of my adult life. And you know, I think the difference was where this was my first time teaching uh, and in the classroom, it was Kelly's something, you know, really long <laughs> amount of time teaching later, right? So she's taught many other things, whereas I was learning Python for the first time, but this was like the seventh or eighth language that I had learned over the course of my career. Our podcast really came about because we were having these really great conversations about teaching and about coding and about how to marry these two together in unique and effective ways for our students. And we just decided we should probably start recording this and sharing it because we have this luxury of having a partner who has strengths that we don't and things that can build upon what we um, are, are trying to learn. And not everyone has that luxury. So if we can make a podcast that becomes that for some people, even if it's you know one way where they can listen only, at least they have somebody that they can hear that they can maybe relate to with their own experiences in the classroom as a teacher, whether they're 
teaching coding for the first time or teaching for the first time, they've got something they can connect with and hopefully build their own professional practice as well. Yeah, and that's so important is having those different perspectives and approaches because often in these situations with coding and computer science, often you're more in the minority than the majority in your school context. So having those resources that you provide. How did you guys meet? I mean, uh, so you both are uh, educators. I assume you're both in the same school, correct? Correct. So funny story, I moved back after teaching abroad and I started working at Pinecrest and but can um, I just tell us where Pinecrest oh, is? And oh, Pinecrest isn't, you know, everybody knows Pinecrest for us now. I'm <laughs> sorry. Course. We're in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It's a PK-12 school, similar to an international school feeling. So we have, we used to have our students start at fourth grade all the way up to 12th. And we are one entity. We don't have to necessarily follow the standards of the state. So, so we have that private school, private, correct. We're school. private. And yes, our, te- our, our boss told, uh, told me that I was going to start coding and teaching it. And I <laughs> was like, um, yeah, you better hire somebody, <laughs> somebody that can, I don't really know anything about Legos. And she says, you could do it. Um, but we found Sean, uh, Sean came in to interview during a, uh, a lockdown. <laughs> and was teaching a, a quick little lesson about the micro bit. And we were just amazed, not just by his knowledge about coding, but just about how he had this social emotional connection with the students and understood that this lockdown situation was kind of stressful after um, we had Parkland had a shooting re- that recently that year. Of course, of course. And so we were very nervous and Sean was aware of the situation and really took it on like a great teacher and we knew that he was a great fit so that's how we met fantastic and so you both are teaching in this and the school pinecrest and i assume what age groups are you working with currently both of you so uh we work six through eighth i primarily teach sixth grade and half of seventh and sean teaches half of seventh and all of eighth so we split it up so I take the yeah. lower grades. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. Over the course of the last few years, we've each taught you know, every grade level. And the way that we've structured everything, we can cover for each other, fill in, and sometimes you know, we'll jump in um, to a lesson and teach parts of it you know, just to give the students a different experience or different take on, oh, on nice. the content and the material. But we end up, we share the classroom, so we spend you know, eight hours a day together during the school year, uh, probably more time than we should. Uh, I'm sure Kelly's tired of me by the end of the day, but we have a lot of fun uh, teaching what we teach. And it, for me, doing this as a second career or third career, I forget what I'm up to now, but it is, it is something that has really been fulfilling, I think, for both of us to teach computer science and teach coding. But I think as we'll get into, and as you'll see as we have our conversation, we're teaching a lot more than just programming. And it's something that is really fulfilling, at least for me personally, and I can see how Kelly lights up and how she gets into it as, as a teacher. Um, so I know that it's meaningful for her too. And, and that's a great segue, Sean, thank you, is why are we teaching coding? That's the first thing. And then you have picked the language of Python. So maybe let's just talk more about coding. Why, you know, there's computational thinking, There, there's a lot of value added to that uh, approach and teaching these concepts but why in the middle school and why did your school decide to make it so explicit in the sense of hiring having two full-time people focused on this uh, curricular area there's i'll take i'll take the computational side you could take the python side (laughs) all right all right sounds good we're not alone in in schools of course not we talk in some sort of computer science coding program in the independent or in the international schools I've worked at. We've always had this PK 12 computer science course. Now, whether it's robotics or scratch, um, micro bits, whatever, it's always been a, a, a dominant feature in the independent private schools. And it's that idea that kids need to be able to problem solve. We need to develop skills that we may not know we need in the future. And so 
constantly increasing, constantly developing a more um, in-depth and stronger curriculum each year is kind of our focus at our school. Um, we could keep doing what we did in the past when I arrived six years ago, which was a little bit of MIT app builder, a little bit of uh, Lego robotics, a little bit of um, scratch, a little bit of this and that in robotics. But it was very, and although we love the idea of introducing the students to different things, we felt that we needed to go deeper into a deeper dive in order to really help the kids pull out that critical thinking, that problem solving, that that um, uncomfortable feeling of the unknown. So that's kind of how our curriculum got mutated into what it was. And I think it's interesting uh, that word that you use is this idea of the uncomfortable, because I think one thing that we so often is when we have kids do projects, there's always a clear end and it's quite comfortable. Usually there's a resolution. And if uh, we just experienced uh, four days of horrific floods in this area of the world and just walking and biking around town today again, just looking at the damage, and is this how are we engaging kids to be uncomfortable with problems that might not be easily solvable? And I think that creative tension, I think, is so important. It's so exciting to hear that was your kind of focus is how can we make this uncomfortable but still a learning opportunity? So Sean, so this is kind of the framework and the pedagogy, and then there are many different languages. Why Python? And maybe tell us a bit about Python. Sure. Um, so the, the big secret, you know, to kind of build on what Kelly was saying is that it doesn't have to be Python, right? There's nothing that says like Python is the best language for education or anything like that. It's the one that we selected for a variety of reasons. Um, but the chief among that is that it is a very natural programming language and the way that it's written, it reads a lot like English. It's a very clear, elegant language and can you can start off very simple. So it's used in a lot of really, um, you know, kind of beginner environments, especially in higher grade levels. So it's places where you can start with structures and then build upon that. But one of the things that's really amazing about Python, in fact, is that it's a full spectrum language. So you can start off very simple, but as you grow in your knowledge and your capabilities, it grows along with you. It's very, very um, capable. It's used in the industry quite extensively. It's one of the fastest growing programming languages over the last 10 years. Um, and the, the main reason for that is because so many people have invested so much into making the language clear and readable and elegant and capable. Now, it's not the best programming language for every situation. That's, you know, it'd be impossible to design a programming language that works for everything. But you'd be amazed at all the things that our students can do in nine weeks of coding with Python. And it's just really impressive to us how much there is for us to discover after three years of doing this or after even longer. There's so many more things that are possible and capable with Python as a language. But the big thing about this is that we don't know what 10 years from now is going to look like for our students as they're getting out of school and into the workforce. It may not be Python anymore. So the yeah. things that we're teaching that we're focusing on are not just the syntax and the structure of Python. It's the concepts. It's the thinking approach. It's the problem solving skills that are really valuable. And Python is a really natural complement to that because it doesn't have a lot of language that gets in the way. It's not terribly complicated in terms of the, the structure of the language itself. And you, you, know, you really uh, highlight this idea of the language is quite accessible and, and it's quite, I'm not gonna say easy, but it's something that is manageable. Do you think that kind of language lends itself to a middle school mindset where maybe it's more fragmented, uh, there may be jumping around a bit more uh, do you feel that kids at that age really gravitate to it because of its accessibility? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll take it for my for myself, and I I am not a person. And there's a huge difference. I know how to code. I can read code. I can make things that are really cool, but I'm not a software developer, so I'm not at that level of experience. And what we get from kids is the same kind of thing in sixth grade and seventh grade. They're coders, Some they're not developers yet, but they're making so many cool products. And it's because they have this creativity 
this this mindset of the of the middle school age where I can do this and I don't understand the restrictions that have been put on me. So if I want to go and scrape a web and find all the pretty shoes out there, I can do it. If I want to make a dress light up, I can do it. If I want to make <laughs> Sean's favorite project, a Star Wars lightsaber light up and <laughs> you know make a cool sound when I when I swing it around, I can do it. And I can do that at a middle school level and those projects aren't so complex upper level projects. They can go that way. Yeah. But the kids can produce great projects with 20 lines of code or 200 lines of code or a thousand lines of code, depending on that creativity. And I like the way you say they don't worry about the restrictions, you know, they're kind of oblivious to that. And there's something very poetic and beautiful that I wish adults sometimes, uh, you know, usually when we do that, we end up in jail or something, you know, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I really like that idea of the unrestrictedness of that. Sean. Yeah, I was going to just add that really one of the big misperceptions about coding for non-coders, for people who haven't coded before, is that they have this concept that it's very math-like and it's very structured and very rigid and concrete, and there's only one right way to do it. But what I think... I'd love to see our kids discover is that there's a vast multitude of ways that they can approach a problem, that they can think through it, that they can come up with their own solutions. And once they understand that, their creativity just flourishes. They're able to, to really find uh, their own solution, their own personal approach to the problem that is coming directly from their brain and into the code. And we are very cautious about the way that we give feedback too, because we don't ever want them to feel like there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. We wanna show them different ways to do it. So you did it this way, here's an, an, another way to think about this, or here might save you some code. So that they're always feeling like they're making forward progress in the way that they're thinking, the way that they're applying things. And that's one of the nice features about the Python language in particular is that it's very flexible and accommodating for a lot of different styles of coding. There are some ways that are preferred, right? There's some ways that we like to do things or some things that are particularly elegant in implementation, but you can accomplish the same goals in a variety of different ways and Python enables you to do that. And, and that's what's nice is that flexibility and, and capacity to pivot from different angles to come in. That's fantastic. Now, why would somebody might say, well, there's problem solving in chemistry and physics, and we have a, I don't know, a problem solving course, whatever, you know, design tech. Is it a different type of problem solving, or is it that that kind of problem solving is kind of a, a you know, it's a wonderful way to transition into another area of focus to highlight this idea of problem solving? I think this is a very complimentary sort of thing. And this is something that Kelly and I spend a lot of time working with other teachers on. The problem solving that we do in the coding space is complementary to the problem solving that you can do in a chemistry classroom or in a language arts classroom or in a social sciences classroom. So these things don't have to be exclusive, right? They can be complementary. They can work well with one another. In fact, they're better when they work together, right? They, like kids get excited when they connect their passions together and they go much further in both the coding space and the chemistry space when they can mash those two things together in a really unique and interesting way. So we always talk about it and, and it always bugs me when I see like kind of stereotyped on screen about like this, you know, superiority of it because it's not that, it's the, these things work better together. And when we think about the student and the learning outcomes that we want them to have, why wouldn't we want our students to have a whole variety of from, right? If it's like a golf player, like if you only give them one club, everything's gonna like not work so well, but we're giving them a variety of clubs. We're giving them all these different approaches that they can take. So one day they might say, you know what? I'm gonna take a humanities-based approach to this. I'm gonna take like a, a dialectic sort of approach to discussing this problem and trying to solve it, or I'm going to have a, a, a conversation about it. And they might also be able to say, now I'm gonna take a more data-driven approach that's gonna use some of my coding skills. Now they've got all those different options. So 
it, the, the tough part is, is that there's only so many hours in the day, right? So <laughs> if we add coding, we have to figure out how that fits with everything else. And sometimes exactly. the answer is maybe we need to pull back on some of the other time that we spend. Maybe it's we need to integrate those together so they're learning two things at the same time. And I think the power that you're highlighting is the idea of transdisciplinary skills. And that's what we want is really kids to have a menu of different skills and approaches and dispositions to then engage with these problems that are kind of unsolvable. And I, I love that connection that you make about this idea of the power of the transdisciplinary where kids, when they connect, as you said, their different passions, then it's just, you know, amplified. So that, that, that's really interesting. Kelly, you were going to share something. Yeah, I mean, the whole time I was Sean was talking, I was just like, yes, I remember, you know, MYP transfer skills. Yeah. Um, I come from an IB background design technology and um, the MYP uh, ATL skills stick in my mind constantly when you ask that question. How do we have this transfer of skill? Everyone had the same skill in the IB with the approaches to learning. How do we learn something? And that same skill could be taught in math and English and humanities and computer science, design tech. And that skill is what's that transferable knowledge that you're talking about. And a lot of the times we try to, what Sean, Sean forgot, the most important thing, we try to implement a lot of technology within the, the classroom. So we do these really cool projects. We did a science project, microbits, in order to simulate genetic transfer. And we had these organisms that would be a male or female, and they would have a, a blue coloring, we would say an eyeball or some eyes or something, and they would send their information across Bluetooth, and you would have these offsprings generated. And Sean made this great program where it collected all these offsprings. And eventually you can see that the offsprings in the population would die out because there was no introduction of new species or there was wow. nothing into the, yes, powerful stuff done yeah. in sixth grade. Yeah. So these, these transferable skills, showing the kids that computer science does not just exist in the classroom, they also exist in the science classroom. So... Yeah, and I think that's a great uh, point of reference is the MYP and the ATLs is the power of the, you know, the transdisciplinary skills. That's so true. Now, often, you know, teachers, you, you'll see in schools, teachers are kind of interested in coding or somebody is dumped with the robotics club, you know, much to their demise. And there is often this kind of, you know, not always, and I'm, of course, exaggerating, but there is this feeling sometimes that, oh, yeah, that's the robotics kids who wants to do F block with the robotics kids. And, and, and it's unfortunate. And what do you think for teachers that maybe are listening to us today and teachers that listen to your podcast? I just wanted to remind people in the show notes, we put the links to the podcast and Kelly and Sean's uh, bio. So definitely spend some time and do subscribe to their podcast. Uh, the idea of, okay, I, I would like to enter into this world. I know nothing about coding. Is this something that I, you know, how... I'm not going to say easy, but if somebody is listening and thinking, wow, that really makes sense. I want to be dealing with problem solving. I would love to engage in transdisciplinary skills in that context. What's the entry point like? I want to put an image in everyone's mind because it's hard during a podcast. But if in an international school system and in the international podcasts for international teachers, you go into a new school, say you move to China. You don't know how to speak Chinese or Mandarin or Cantonese, but you go anyways to this country and you are this person that is put inside of this country and you learn how to get around in the country, how to speak a little bit of Mandarin because it's a necessity, right? We are living in this world where technology is around us. Yes, eventually it might just be some blocks that you can pull down but understanding what's going on in the background is a necessity. So being that person that's eager to go travel and to go to a new country and to learn a new language, there's no other reason why you should. It's so beautiful that I can look at Sean's code and I can read it now. I might not be able to make my own code as, as beautiful as his is right now, but I can read it, I can understand, I can look at the purpose behind the code. And it's a nice feeling understanding what's happening every time I open up my computer now. Yeah. So 
That, that's a great analogy. Uh, Sean, what about your, your thoughts about this entry point? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple um, good starting points component to this as well, the way that you should think about your own uh, entry into this space, in addition to what Kelly said. And I think one of the things that she's done really well is create a lot of tangible, reachable goals for herself in her coding to be able to say, I want to start by going out and downloading the Python program from their website or downloading an editor and starting with some sample projects, starting with some things that are really simple and easy to learn that I can then teach to others, right? So I learn a concept so I can teach it. But then the other thing that she's done is she's found projects and things that get her excited and connect with her other passions. That transdisciplinary connection is really important for us as teachers as well yeah, to find so that true. connection. Um, so finding those things along, along the way, I, I'm starting at zero to being progressively more capable and more adept. And I think if you go into this with the mindset of I'm going to start at zero and in six months, I want to be a super coder, you're probably dooming yourself to failure, right? <laughs> it's probably unrealistic, but also it's that goal's too far away. It's like, yeah. it's hard to see that. It's the same idea to, to use the analogy that Kelly brought in. It's the same idea of like, I need to be able to go to the market and order right, and get food and make sure that I'm not going to get poisoned by something that I inadvertently order unintentionally, right? Like I need to be able to have some basic language skills to be able to navigate the world around me. So finding those initial basic language skills in coding is really important. And there's a lot of really great resources out there um, that you can find to get ideas and inspiration and, and steps. I would definitely look at the Mu editor as a good starting point. It's a uh, program that you can download to your computer and it runs on Windows, Mac, Linux. I think they even have a, like a Chromebook version coming. So it's really accessible. It includes Python. So you don't need to figure out how to you know, add Python and your editor to be able to write the Python code. It's all in one. And they also have a lot of great example code that they share on their blog all the time. So nice. you can see examples of how things work. Um, there's also a lot of great resources on various websites. So we like the Real Python website. It's a has a lot of great resources from beginner to advanced. So if you're starting off really small and and tangible achievable goals. It has that. It also has really advanced skills for things like I want to do web scraping or I want to do data science or something that's a more advanced Python based skill. Um, but I think the other thing that's really important is creating this PLN for yourself, especially if you're the only one teaching, create a professional learning network using Twitter, using social media to connect with other educators and get ideas and inspiration, have those people that you can go to and ask for help or say, Hey, figure this out. Um, there's another great place for that, which is the Discord channel for Python. There's a Discord Python community, and there's a ton of people there who are online at all hours of the day looking to help you learn a little bit of Python or get over a little bit of a, a sticking point. And it's also nice. a great place for teachers to be able to practice their teaching of coding because there's always people looking for help and you can do a little bit of one-on-one -on -one tutoring with them um, to teach them. And you can, you don't have to, you know, tackle everything. You can say, here's a beginner who has something I know how to teach them about. I can jump in there and teach them about that one thing and practice those skills. Thank you. And Sean, thank you for those resources. And what I'll do is make sure you can type them into our shared doc so we yep. can put them into the show notes because I know that will resonate with people very much. I like John, the way, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I just want to add one little thing. And this is something that as a beginner has really helped me. Time out, set a time to study um, and don't have expect hours on one day and not for another two days. I've been learning that the shorter amount of time that I study each day, and I really focus in hard on hard projects that are challenging my mind and and making me think about why I made these errors has really helped me grow more. At, you, at the beginning, I was like, oh my God, I gotta learn everything, everything and I have to study for eight hours before I teach. And that was so overwhelming and it just, it, it did not help my teaching at all. And I resorted now to about 30 to, 30 to 60 minutes each day. And I feel like you grow more with the small chunks of learning. 
And I like that focus time uh, kind of truncated. And also, if you don't 30 minutes, then that doesn't mean the other stuff gets in the way. And, you know, there's always uh, what I call shrapnel flying around, <laughs> be it a child or whatever. Uh, so definitely. Kelly, you talked about, and with actually a lot of passion about is that we need to understand how these things work. And by the things I'm talking about computers. And I was just, just wrapped up my PTC course. And one of the things many participants were talking about the digital natives. And one thing I was saying as a creative tension and uh, provocation was that they're not digital natives. They're very good digital uh, consumers. They're actually extremely savvy consumers. And I think this idea of co-creation and creation is what is often missing in their understanding of technology because they aren't often creating things with technology or understanding how this technology is created. So I think what you're talking about is so important. Do you feel in some ways that there is, there is a potential where there is going to be in school systems cohorts of kids that engage with what you're doing, this problem solving, and then other cohorts that don't have those opportunities and kind of almost a digital divide in awareness of what, you know, how is the algorithm in interacting with me and how is this actually impacting me? Because I think what your school has done is made a very purposeful, well thought out, like this is a, a transdisciplinary skill that's essential to the problem solving and I assume tied to your learning principles and your mission, but that might not be the case in every school. And what are your thoughts about kind of the urgency of this approach? Wow. Um unpacking that. So I, I, I like to think of it for with my own child. So he loves scratch, they learned scratch in second and third grade. But what he loved most about scratch was playing the games on scratch. And we had this conversation that yes, the games are fun. And they're a great way to see what other people have done. But what are you taking away from that moment? What are you learning? And, and why do you want to learn how to do these things? And it's this conversation that I think has to be instilled, regardless if you're teaching Python or teaching Scratch, it needs to be in school within the, the core curriculum of why are we doing the things that we're doing? You know, why are we, why are we teaching the math that, the way that we're teaching math? Why are we teaching humanities the way that we're teaching humanities? Why are we teaching computer science the way that we're teaching computer science? What are we trying to get from that 12th grade student when they graduate from our school? If we keep allowing this division of only these kids get this coding and these kids don't, then we're, we're spreading that divide, that, that technological divide. And it's almost, it's, it's at a default. Yeah. Right. We have doctors now that can use AI to find cancer. We have 3D printed ears going on these children who, you know, who have a missing ear. We have finance, e-finance going into play. We have the Bitcoin. We have everything, everything happening within the technological world. Had I kept on that that side where I was just teaching, you know, I was just teaching science and I was using using the technology, I would I would still survive in the world. But I'm in a better place because I know and students are in a better place because they know what's going on and they can make the decisions on where they want to go. You can add on because nice. no, I know I you love, have lost it. <laughs> I, I love the way you use the analogy with your child from scratch and wanting to play the game. That was really thank you. Sean. Yeah, I have so I have so many thoughts about this. Uh, <laughs> I, you this know, and I, the... it's great. That's why I'm asking, because I was like, I'm sure they're gonna come up with a lot here. Well, and, and this is one of the main reasons why I'm teaching. This is my purpose is helping to share what I have learned and what I have found valuable in my own professional career and personal life with students. And I would have gotten into technology whether I had the instruction or not, right? So whether it was in my classroom or in my school, I probably would have found a way to make it work because it I naturally gravitated to it. We have lots of students who, because they're surrounded by technology, have this curiosity, have this interest and engagement that is kind of naturally happening. And we can encourage and, and channel it and, and help build on it. We also have students who are in this kind of gray area where they may, may not, it may not naturally appear to them. 
But one of the things that I found most rewarding in my teaching career so far has been when those students that may not have otherwise gotten into this without a structured computer science class have discovered a new strength about themselves, a new way of thinking, a new capability that they wouldn't have otherwise seen. So I feel like we are serving a wide variety of students when we ensure that every student at least receives some amount of computer, the students who already have an interest better. And we're helping these students that didn't, hadn't discovered their interest, find a new strength about themselves, find something new that they love or that they can apply. And so when you're looking at that justification within your school, or the, if you're pitching this program, you need to be thinking about those kids that are in that undiscovered country that you haven't reached yet, that they haven't otherwise gotten this this creative mentality, and even though they may not end up being software developers in the future, or engineers or data scientists or anything where they are heavy coders in their future lives, they may be a lawyer who understands how AI can be used to better understand case history and precedent. They may be a, um, an, a mechanical engineer who can better model and design things because they know how to use code to do that. I have a friend of mine from college who is um, running a company that does sewer inspections using artificial intelligence from beneath our feet all the way up into space could be enhanced or made better with coding and programming in this technical mindset. And a lot of students, a lot of kids won't understand that unless they get that exposure. And so that's why making this a, a compulsory part of our curriculum is really vital for our students to have at least that exposure. They may choose that it's not something for them, but at least they've seen it, they've tried it, they've gotten their hands on it, just like every student should have a chemistry class at some point, right? Every student should have clay that they mold and shape because who knows what will spark that interest for them until they actually try it. And I love that you highlight this uh, anecdote of the lawyer that's maybe went to your coding class but did not decide to do coding. But at least with the awareness and the understanding, he's better disposed or she's better disposed to engage with the topic of maybe it's artificial intelligence or something like that. And I think what you're saying is so true is this idea that if we are aware and have had an exposure to it, we never know where that might take us. And it's almost why would you prevent people from having the exposure and that opportunity? And I love the way you talk about this idea of creativity where kids, this undiscovered country, as you say so nicely, is that whole cohort of kids that are kind of floating maybe with no passion, you know, kids always hate when you have I passion day, they're like, I don't have a passion, you know, <laughs> I like watching YouTube, there you go. So I, 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 this really resonates. On that same idea, of course, you know, one of the common themes in, in, with diversity is this idea, it's very gender centric, that there is a disproportionate of boys that get involved in uh, Kelly, you're, you're proving us wrong, which is wonderful. And you're not the only one. There are many amazing uh, female colleagues around the world that are engaging with this. Is Have you noticed a shift maybe in, because you're doing it in middle school and maybe it's not as defined what people want to do? They're maybe not yet thinking, okay, college, AP, or IB. Uh, do you have a wider mix than would you say if you had done it in high school? We, well... We're lucky in the fact that it's a mandatory course, at least. Okay, so this is mandatory. This is really this important is for mandatory. our listeners to hear. Yes. That. That's good. So I, it's, I, it's not an elective. No, and I think that, to be honest, I think that is very, very important. Um, it's it's kind of like banned. You know, everybody in the lower, they you're, you're, it's a required course. They want you to do that. Kids don't know what they want to do until they've tried it. Yeah. I always say to my, my children, you know, you have to try it first before you say you don't like it. it goes with food, goes with so true. So first and foremost, we do have a mandatory nine weeks course that every sixth, seventh, and eighth grade student has to take. And it's every every year they take nine weeks. On top of that, we think what happens is students start to see girl students, and I'm gonna isolate them, but 
female students, boy students, but girl people that don't think that they could code see me coding. And I'm very open with the fact that I've only been coding three years. I make tons of mistakes. Students love the fact of correcting me and showing me a better way to code. And I allow that vulnerability. I can't speak yeah, today. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a big word for me today <laughs> on a summer holiday. But anyways, I allow myself to be vulnerable in front of them. And I think that helps because the last thing that a student wants to do is fail in front of people. It's hard for them. So we tend to pull people in. We we look at people that like sean said do not like to code or maybe thought they didn't like to code or thought they couldn't code and we try to find things that connect them for example i had a girl that loves sewing absolutely loves sewing i can't sew sean can sew i can't sew <laughs> i pulled her in and i say look we have this really cool sewing machine that you can put a code on there and it's going to print out this really cool cool pattern that you can can design so and she's like i know how to sew so we started doing this sewing clothes wearable clothing club and it was just to get her in and now she's coding in the high school she's gone to tsa she does wearable technologies and it's all because i said i can't i can't code you or can't sew. you have to help me and you bring these in so it's it's looking for those wins they might be one off like you know, Sean and I, we find these one-off people that we we get into coding and it's so powerful just to see that one person and then they bring their friends in. And the next thing you know, we have an all-girls robotics team learning how to drive Sean's deep racers from AWS. <laughs> awesome, that's great. And I think that's what's so important is your point is that it's just one person and it might not feel like, oh, this is now this, you know, cataclysm of change. But then there's a domino effect, you know, she's going to talk to somebody else and, and suddenly it's, 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 it's these little steps. It's almost like, you know, the little, uh, you throw a rock in the pond and those things kind of spread out. So I love that story. And I think that's so important is, you know, also, as you say, being comfortable showing your vulnerability as an opportunity for kids to say, hey, by the way, let me kind of have some voice and choice here. Sean, yeah. any thoughts on this gender issue? I mean, I would, I would add, I've been on the, on the professional side of this for most of my career. So thankfully I started my career in at Procter and Gamble, which is a very diverse and, and wonderful place to, to work. And I would work on engineering teams that were 90% men and I would work, you know, but run by a woman, right? So our, our department head was a woman and she was very sharp and very savvy, and so sometimes, you know, it just naturally the way that the qualifications work out and the hiring and the history and all of those things, there's like this inertia of gender, you know, bias in the workplace. There's also explicitly toxic environments in the technology space. I mean, just this week, there's a whole lawsuit from the state of California against Activision uh, Blizzard in their um, Los Angeles office about this toxic culture of masculinity and these horrible things that have allegedly happened there. This is a reality of the tech space and the we live, but we have to change it. It's not something that we should allow to exist. It's not something that's okay. It, just because it's there doesn't mean it's okay, but we have to start at the roots of the problem. The roots of this problem are when you go into a computer science classroom and all the examples are things about sports and male sports, right? Or they're all like really nerdy math problems or something like that that aren't very inclusive for a variety of people. We have to go, we have to create these spaces, these environments where every single person feels that they have something meaningful that they can do, accomplish, contribute, participate in so that they build that strength and the resilience, whether they're a boy or a girl, to go out into the world and say, this space that is out here that I'm walking into that may be toxic or gender biased or ethnicity biased or whatever it is, this is not okay. And I'm going to change it so that they know that it doesn't have to be that way, that because they've been in a place where they were valued, where they were accepted, where everyone was valued for their contributions. If we can create that point throughout their school career, if we can create those environment, then they will hopefully be equipped with the strength, 
the confidence, the capabilities, the ability to articulate what they're looking for in the world that they go into, whether that's a workplace or a university or the place where it happens is in lower school and middle school and upper school, where they can say, I'm going to stand up for what's right. And what's right here is that everyone can participate and everyone is valued. And what you're saying is so true is this idea of modeling and mentoring and creating the structures and spaces. So when they go into, as you described, that toxic environment, they have a very strong point of reference and a structure and experiences that's in their toolkit. And they're going to feel courageous and say, hold on here. I know how it can work differently. Let me show you or let me engage you in some of the thinking that maybe you're not thinking about. So I absolutely, that's so true. And I think sometimes we underestimate the impact that we do have as educators in, you know, in modeling that change, because you're right, that change is endemic and it's everywhere it, here also in the context of Europe. And, you know, I think schools have such a greater ethical responsibility than sometimes they realize. And also the power is kind of like this an unknown power that we have that we can really wield to make change. And, and I just love the way uh, you highlighted that in both of your share outs. One thing that I'm, I'm curious about is you have uh, your podcast. So you talked about that, you know, you wanted to kind of share your ideas. You had this very strong PLN between yourselves. Who's listening to you? Who is your audience? Tell us a little bit about all these people that I you you know you're doing great. Uh, you have a YouTube stream. Uh, you use Streamyard, and you have the website. Uh, talk to us about your audience. Who are these people? Wow, it varies. And each day when someone sends us an email um, saying they've listened to our podcast, I'm always and grateful at the same time. We have people that teach elementary school Python. We have computer science teachers who teach, uh, what is it? What's that language? Goat Kotlin. People that aren't just in the Python community alone. We have university professors, people that teach camps, um, developers who work with underprivileged students. We underprivileged um, communities that go out and try to get kids connected and engaged in coding and they want to learn how to summer camps. What else? Parents, parents that are want to know what Python is about. We have a couple of students that listen to us, uh, younger nice. people. Well, it, a really it's, nice eclectic kind of a mix of people. That's fantastic. Yeah. We don't know who we are. We're both so di diverse, Sean and I, I. I'm definitely like this nerdy teacher who just likes to learn stuff. I might not do much with this all the time. <laughs> I just keep learning things. And Sean's like right. this great developer. So we have this difference between it. It brings in our listeners. So Yeah, we have a pretty geographically diverse listener base too. I mean, when I look at the numbers on our, our website for who's listening from where, Although we're a US-based podcast, we're both here and being in English, um, only about 50% of our downloads are coming from the US. The other 50% is spread out throughout the world. Wow. Obviously, a lot of English-speaking countries, but yeah. we have, uh, I'm going to make a shout out to Natasha from, uh, I think she's in St. Um, but one of our, our fans has been with us for years. She's been listening for a long time uh, from Russia, and she talks uh, with us about the things that she's teaching and learning. So I love the connections that we get from all over the world, people who are, are dialed to us. Um, it's really a wonderful experience and it's really enriched our teaching and coding and everything, the connections that people have made with us. Uh, it's just been a really great experience. And, and we've loved the last two and a half years of this ride. I mean, I think we're up to, as of this morning, 252,000 downloads on the podcast. That's great. Um, Fantastic. At, yeah. And that's www.teachingpython.fm. So definitely uh, look at the show notes and there'll be some resources and other goodies there that we'll make sure you have access to. I want to thank both of you for this wonderful conversation. I feel like I should go and get a bottle of red wine and sit back and we could keep going. Uh, but we, time is slipping by. Any parting thoughts if you think, you know, one thing that you would like people to walk away with, a provocation or just a reflection as we wrap up this wonderful conversation? And I am so 
appreciative of you taking the time during your holidays to share this and uh, definitely look forward to more. But just any parting thoughts as we kind of bring this podcast to a close for this week? Yes, for me, it's, you know, sometimes as teachers, we work in this silo um, where we're in our classrooms, we close the doors, we don't have this mentorship. And Sean and I understand that that's difficult. And what we love about what we're doing with Teaching Python podcast is that we get to talk to other people. So if you are even have an inkling of desire about learning how to code, wants to develop more skills, we really um, appreciate the mails and reaching out. We are, we, we respond back. We have a lot of friends. We made a lot of friends because of our podcast, I should say. And it's something that we treasure. We don't get paid for our podcasts. We get paid with your friendship and your PLN. PLN. So if you have an inkling of desire to learn how to code or teach it in your school, please, please, please feel free to contact us. We really um, like to grow with you. So that's, that's my thing. Kelly, I love the currency of friendship. <laughs> if I could live off that, I think most of the world's problems would be solved. So whatever that currency is, I, I think it even beats Bitcoin. So absolutely, thank you. thank you, Sean. So my, my final thought, is to remember to dream, dream big about your teaching goals. Don't just settle for this is the way it's always been, or this is what we've always done. Dream. And I'm going to borrow from my good friend, Eric Mathis, one of the challenges and the prompts that he gives for his students. And, and I've really embraced this is this question. If you had infinite programming skills, what would you make? And I'm going to broaden that to say for our teachers, if you had infinite teaching skills, if you could teach anything you wanted, what would you teach? And so remember that, that dream, right? The, the dream of what you want to make happen in the world is possible. For Kelly and I, we started doing this three years ago together, learning how to code, learning how to teach. And there's a lot of work that goes into it. It's, you know, you have to keep at it. You have to you know, put the time in, you have to put the hours in. But it all comes from that dream of the bigger purpose. What are we really trying to accomplish? What are we trying to do with our students, for our students, for ourselves? And so my, my challenge to everyone is, especially if you've got time before the school year ramps up again, is just take some time to dream big about what you want to do and how you want to accomplish it. And then go, go make it happen. And you can do it. Because if we can do this with launching a podcast, learning how to teach, having never taught before, learning how to code, having never coded before, you can accomplish at least partway to that dream. And you're going to be closer to it than you were when you started. Thank you for those inspiring words, Sean and Kelly. Thank you both for coming and sharing your wisdom and your experience. And uh, really, uh, hats off to you. And really look forward to keeping in touch. And of course, reminder again, check the show notes out, a lot of goodies. And Kelly and Sean, wishing you a good rest of the summer. And hopefully, Kelly, you're going to get some downtime uh, <laughs> as you fly off to hopefully a nice destination. But uh, both of you, thank you again. Yeah.